The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, I love it in Flint. You're very astute. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
birds are jangling your hair Why did summer go so quickly? Was there something that you said? Love was warm along the shore Leave the footprints in the sand And is the sound of distant drumming Just the fingers of your hand And pictures hanging in a hole We are the fragment of our song Have remembered names and faces But to whom do they belong? And when you knew that it was over Like a wheel within a wheel Never ending or beginning On a never spinning reel As the images unwind Like the circles that you find In the windmills of your mind back everybody this is the tom sumner program pre-saint patrick's day edition and uh, what better way to uh, uh, ramp up to tomorrow's uh, saint patrick's day than by talking about beer <laughs> and who better to do that with than the authors of a new book from national geographic called literally the atlas of beer they know where to go to find great beer my guests are um Nancy Holst-Pullen and Mark Patterson, they are both uh, PhDs and uh, beer, beer geographers. And I'm not sure how you get a gig as a beer geographer, but we're going to find out. Nancy, Mark, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Um, and I'm not sure who, the the two of you work together on this book and and another one called the Geographies, or Geography of Beer. Have I got that right? Um, yeah, that's correct. That was the first one. Who figured out that this was something to uh, put together and, and uh, make into? Uh, this is basically an encyclopedia of beer. Um, 
how did that how did that start? We had um, written a book uh, probably ten years ago, and we went to visit the publisher just to say hi, and he showed us this book that was selling really well, and it was called The Geography of Wine. And Nancy said, well, why don't you do beer next? And we sat down at lunch and literally on a cocktail napkin, we sketched out the table of contents for The Geography of Beer. And 18 months later, uh, they published the book, The Geography of Beer. And we have a, a friend who works at National Geographic, and he encouraged us to approach National Geographic and try and sell them on the idea of doing uh, a coffee table version of the book. That's a pitch I would like to have seen. It was. It was really popular. There was everyone from about every division of National Geographic, and we thought... <laughs> Why is there so much interest in this book? Well, we found out that there was a beer tasting after our pitch, so everyone got to watch oh. us. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, and the interesting part to that is that they had four beers. We didn't know what they were, and they wanted us to pitch the beers as well just to make sure that we knew something about beer. Um, which one of you had the interest in beer first? Uh well, I think I do just because I'm older, but I would I would say overall it's pretty mutual. Um, and the reason I ask it because it I was reading your biographies and it it says both of you have traveled, but but it almost looks as if all your travels were in search of beer. Is that is that fair? <laughs> I, I can say when I travel, one of the first things I do is. is um, to seek out a place to have a beer. Well, it's, and usually, if I'm traveling with Mark, I just go to wherever he's seeking out a beer. So it ends up working out in the end. Well, Garrett Oliver uh, wrote uh, the foreword to this uh, Atlas of Beer, which is a globe-trotting journey through the world of beer. Um, and and that's one of the things he said. He that he he moved to London, and it was music-related was the reason that he went there. But he just he fell in love with beer. He just had a beer and and fell in love with it. And is that kind of how it was for you? I mean, were you always a beer fan? And I I would say before the craft beer revolution happened in the nineties and especially in the aught decade, um, the choices in the United States were relatively limited. Unless you lived in a place that brought in beers from Belgium or you had beers from the England area, you really didn't have that many choices in beer styles. So I think at the time that Garrett and um, other people went abroad, myself, Mark included, you could go other places to get styles that you necessarily wouldn't get in the U.S. Nowadays, you can get almost anything here, whether it's made here or imported. So. The amount of choices that you have are staggering in comparison to just 30 years ago. But if you do go abroad, the nice thing is is that you don't just enjoy the beer, but you enjoy the company of the people that you're surrounded by. And that's part of what traveling, um, that's the highlights of traveling, is to be able to see and experience other places. And if you have a beer in your hand, it's just the icing on the cake. I, I, I want to get back to the pitch meeting for just a, a minute, if we can. Um, how do you 
tell somebody like National Geographic has been around for over a hundred years, and and their their work is incredible. How do you go to an institution like that and say, you know, we'd like it, you know, for you to send us around the world in search of great beer? <laughs> it's pretty much like you just said. <laughs> and but they were they were already warm to the idea. They said that they had been approached uh, a couple years prior, and uh, the idea was turned down by, by the uh, the higher ups. So perhaps it was uh, the timing in our favor. Or just we're so great. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and maybe because you already had some credibility. Uh, on this. I, I think that definitely did not hurt. I know one of the things that they liked about us was the fact that we didn't just know beer, but we also knew geography, which is one of their pillars. Um, so if we can add the academic, the learning aspect to the storytelling, I think overall we were a good match for for their organization. Now I remember before the uh, before people started home brewing and and all of the craft beers uh, kind of exploded in the u.s um and i i remember that period of time when there were there were a few brands and there were a few imports but um it it there wasn't a lot of variety when you're traveling around the world is there anywhere else that has the kind of variety that that the u.s does now or is beer appreciated brewed and and uh, consumed somewhat regionally Beer is definitely produced and consumed regionally. Uh, I think in terms of variety, the U.S. is, uh, by and large, the leader in the world. The number of styles and, and the different varieties of beer that are being produced in the U.S., uh, the other countries just can't compete with us. They're starting to catch up. But having said that, the folks from Belgium would argue, well, we have about a 1,000 different styles uh, of beer over here. Uh, and the reason why they argue that is because each place produces its own style over in Belgium. But uh, for, the, for the everyday beer drinker, I'd say the U.S. is, is uh, definitely ahead of the curve. More Beer Talk with Nancy Holst-Pullen and Mark Patterson, authors of Atlas of Beer from National Geographic, when we return. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you.
Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in edible arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for edible arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody, to this St. Patrick's uh, Day preview sort of uh, edition of the Tom Sumner Program. My guests are Nancy Holst-Pullen and Mark Patterson. They are the authors of National Geographic's Atlas of Beer, a globetrotting journey through the world of beer. We continue uh, our conversation right now. You know, beer was just thought of as as sort of um, there were different brands and there were different breweries um, and and people had preferences. But uh, until fairly recently, within the last 20 or 30 years or so, beer was just beer. Um, But around the world it has always been uh treated as 
something, uh, a, a real labor of love by the brewers themselves, much like uh, winemakers. I, I agree with that, and I actually think that there were those type in the U.S. as well since its founding. Um, one of the first advertisements uh, in the U.S. was to find a brewer. So first <laughs> job out of the U.S., need a brewer for our new town. Um, oh, so funny. I think there's always been people who, who have had that labor of love, even in the U.S., but I think what happened, especially in the 80s and the de- few decades before that, is that there was a lot of consolidation of breweries, partially because of the laws since Prohibition and partially just because people with money will buy out smaller companies. So what ended up happening is that it's big corporations and mega conglomerates that were owning the beer instead of individual people owning it. So once the rules changed in 1978 and thereafter, you got to see that those people individually making the beers, having independent breweries, and and showcasing that labor of love that I think really did happen before Prohibition, but we've just, in our in our historic memory, don't we don't remember it. Uh, Mark and Nancy, you're both um, geography professors. Um, is it reasonable to ask which came first, beer or geography, for you? Well, I think the first time I tried beer, I was seven, so I'm going to say <laughs> beer came first. But, but is your love of geography separate from beer, and, and the two just uh, make a good fit together? Uh, definitely. I've, I've always enjoyed geography, uh, looking at atlases. And as I got older, I enjoyed beer. And, and the fact that I could combine my love of geography and, and beer into a single uh, endeavor uh, was just a home run for me. Um, I, I was definitely, I, I, yeah, there's definitely a confluence that happened a little bit later in life, but I, I always like to look at things spatially. So I like to look at geography, um, where things are, why they happen in certain areas, what's the relationship between people and place. And so it was pretty simple to add beer to it, to add it to that context. Um, and I guess when you're a PhD, you start, you're trained in, in whatever it is that you learn. And so if you learn to look at things geographically, why wouldn't you include beer too? <laughs> Excellent. Um, why the interest in geography, um, Nancy? It, people in the United States are not really very good with geography, typically. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I do my part to make sure that they, at least the students that I teach, um, learn it and appreciate it. Because I think if you appreciate um where you come from, where you live, what's happened beforehand, what can happen in the future... I think you are more empathetic, more sympathetic to what's going on just outside your little cloister of life. So the more you know about other places, I think the more the better um, the better you are as a citizen to the world. Not to sound grandiose, but I think there is truth to it. Is is beer pretty much a uh, a product of Western civilization? 
Actually, the archaeologists have found the um, earliest evidence of beer originated in China, and this is about 7,000 BC. And then the next earliest would be uh, in modern-day Iraq. So uh, that perspective, beer is not a Western invention, but uh, beer is indigenous to every continent, with the exception of uh, Australia and Oceania. And, and we have to thank the English for bringing it there <laughs> on a boat <laughs> with convicts. To, to Australia? Yes. Um, and because it seems to me it's uh, pretty well entrenched there now. Oh, absolutely. What we, is... We've been to... Go ahead. Sorry, we've been to Australia, and they definitely, definitely like their beer. Um, <laughs> although it's tax-heavy there, they drink it uh, despite the cost. And and how much um, does that af- affect um, consumption in, in different areas? Are there places where um, beer is, is taxed so heavily that... that people consume it less or um, is there are there are a lot of places that have a progressive tax so as the alcohol content increases in the beer so too does the tax and this was common in places like Australia and New Zealand and certainly in um, the Scandinavian countries and uh, Japan as well and what you'll find is a lot of brewers will be making beer up to a certain uh, percentage of alcohol, and then you'd be hard-pressed to find beer that goes beyond that, and that's simply a function of the tax being uh, increased at that particular alcohol volume. Now, was it, do you get the impression that that tax was uh, levied as a fundraiser or to curb uh, drunkenness? Um, they will tell you it's to curb drunkenness. My belief is that it's usually as a fundraiser for the government. And many people, many historians believe, um, and I'm, I'm apt to think the same thing, that prohibition was ended because without it, you didn't have the tax revenue. Without beer and alcohol, you didn't have the, the tax revenue coming into the United States government. So if you brought it back, uh, you would get that tax revenue. And many people argue that that was one of the fundamental reasons that prohibition was stopped in the the 30s and the 18th Amendment was repealed. Uh, Elsewhere in the world, I think it's to curb drunkenness, or at least that's the popular thought. But I think they really go hand in hand. Whether you raise money, whether you curb drunkenness, I think both of them are used as as rationale for having high taxes. You know, you've mentioned prohibition in the United States uh, a couple of times. What happened to beer during that period of time? Uh, For the most part, beer being produced in the U.S. uh, disappeared. So it was illegal to produce beer in the U.S. That turned out to be a boon for places like Canada and Mexico where it was not illegal to produce beer. So through the black market, uh, they could smuggle beer into the U.S. that way. 
but by and large, the number of breweries that were located in the U.S. Uh, declined immensely, and it was the larger breweries that were able to switch to brewing things like soda or near beer that were able to, to survive uh, prohibition. If I could add something, yeah. there's two exceptions. Um, one is that it was actually legal to drink beer. It wasn't legal to sell or produce the beer. So that was the interesting loophole. You could actually drink and not get in trouble. It was those that were selling it. Um, so that's why the bootleggers for alcohol would always be the ones that would be getting into trouble, not necessarily the people who were drinking it. And second, you could still get a prescription for beer and alcohol from your doctor. <laughs> That's so, interesting. Yes, doctor knows best I, sometimes. I, I, had, uh, I had heard that. Um, was there an explosion of, of home brewing during uh, Prohibition? And if not, how come? There wasn't a, an explosion of home brewing during Prohibition, and I think, by and large, it was because we see um, the amount of the amount of ingredients needed to brew beer on on a, a viable scale just weren't available. So you could be baking stuff that's a lot more potent, such as moonshine, with the same amount of ingredients. So that's where we start to see the um, expansion of that particular culture. How um, how did beer come about in, initially? I, I mean, you talk about it seven thousand years ago. Um, was it just a matter of it uh, was it kind of a, a water treatment thing? <laughs> I'm sure. So there's always the question: which came first, beer or bread? Um, and and the reason is they use more or less the same ingredients apart from moder more modern-day beers, which have hops as an ingredient used for bittering and as a preservative. So if you have grains that you are collecting and they happen to get wet and they happen to ferment, ferment and then someone tries it out and then gets a bit goofy off of it or has uh, an experience that is otherworldly, um, I think people would want to recreate that situation. <laughs> so we don't know if it's haphazard or intentional um, back all those thousands of years ago. But I definitely think that uh, once they figured out the alcoholic properties, um, that people made it on purpose for the reasons that, um, you know, Back then, the alcohol levels were not as high as they are today, but it was probably enough to stave off uh, hunger for food and um, the pains of the work, the toils that people would have to do. In fact, slaves during Egyptian times were paid in beer. I know a lot. And of I guess I know a lot of musicians that have had that experience. <laughs> they would probably um, <laughs> work for beer, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm I'm guessing that you know once it was really figured out how to create it, how to make it, and how to incorporate it into society, it was quite common. And in fact, um, beer was extremely common in early America, 
and everybody drank it. And even George Washington gave uh, those that were fighting in the American Revolution um, a certain amount of beer per day as part of their their in their daily ration. So it's always been an important part of society, um, especially where you could find beer. I'm surprised that uh, General Washington didn't give him whiskey because he was a huge. Uh, he was the he had the largest uh, whiskey distillery in the country at that time. But he also made beer, and you don't want your troops drunk. <laughs> that's true. That that's probably not a good thing. Um, but in the process of of putting together this book, how do you how do you sit down and map out and say? Where are we going to go? Um, what are we going to show? And and how do we how do we compile that? Oh, that's such a good question. Before we wrote a single word, we had to sit down and come up with an outline for the book. The book is about three hundred pages long, and the outline for the book was about one hundred and eighty pages long. And when we compiled the outline, we would be doing research. Uh, on various countries about what the beer culture is like, what we needed to see, uh, what breweries were uh, outstanding in the particular country. And then from there, we were actually able to go ahead and map out our trips. You know, it's it's funny. I never really gave this uh, much thought, but whether you're in Germany or, or Ireland, um, the U.K., it, Beer seems to be at at the center of um, social life. I, I mean, lots of you know people go to the pubs and and there are beer fests and you know in the United States everybody drinks beer in honor of St. Patrick's Day. It's you know it's part of what makes you Irish on St. Patrick's Day. Um, but were there some surprises about parts of the world where beer maybe plays more of a role than we would expect? I don't know if I would say it's a surprise, but places such as uh, England, Ireland, you know, the, the pub is a cornerstone of their culture because it's a place where people went after working where they could catch up on the news, catch up on the gossip, discuss politics, let people know what's going on with their family. So beyond just serving alcohol, the pub served a very important uh, social and cultural function within those societies. If you look at Ireland, for example, there are about 5 million people who live in Ireland, but there are over 7,000 pubs. If you do the math, it's, that's one of the highest ratios of, of pubs to people in the world. And it's not because, not just because the Irish like to drink, but it's also because of the functions that, that places like pubs serve in those cultures. It was the original social the US, media. Yeah, I think in the U.S. it's actually really interesting that, um, I mean, have you heard of, you, you know of the circuit court system? Have you ever heard of the circuit courts? Sure. Judicial, um, they originated from uh, pubs. So the judges would actually, the lawyers and the whole enclave of them would go from pub to pub and hold um, 
judicial hearings and um, do all the lawyerese at those locations, and that's why they call it a circuit court, because they would go from one to the other. Interesting. Well, very often uh, the, the town saloon was the place that, that closed on election day, and that's where they voted. Exactly. So they were kind of the, the town hall before we had town halls. Oh, yes. They were definitely the town hall in so many ways. <laughs> I, I noticed there was a, a reference to um, Russian beer. And, and of course, most of us, when we think of Russia, we think of vodka. But um, what? how is uh, Russian beer? I would say Russian beer tastes um, quite like um, many of the lagers in the U.S. But what I think is interesting about Russia is that it was only a couple years ago um, where they didn't even consider beer to be an alcoholic beverage. It was actually considered considered food. Really? That yes. is interesting. Yeah, it was only the last couple of years that it was that it's actually considered to be um on the same the same level as alcohol or at least be considered the same as uh, as vodka. What is it about beer that that makes it more food than than say wine or uh, liquor? Uh well Way back when, <laughs> back in the day, it, it was it was not as clean, clear, crisp tasting as it is today. It was a lot more meaty. There was probably things floating in it. Um, it wasn't as well um, filtered, and so it had a lot more. It looked a lot more like a mead or. Um, not like oatmeal, but it was a lot thicker. There's a lot more to it. And so in many cases, it was an alternative to food. Uh, it gave calories. It helped uh, stave off any pangs of starvation or food deprivation that you may have. Um, and in the case of medieval times, even the monks would give it um, as an option uh, for those who may be uh, poor and coming through town, they would give uh, beer to those who needed it. Um, and they did so because it'll, it'll allow them to have, um, it gave them the same food properties that you would have if you could give bread, but with a little extra to it. This is uh, this is fascinating. I feel like we could talk about this all day, maybe over a couple of beers. <laughs> but uh, uh, my guests are uh, Nancy Holst Pollen and Mark Patterson, um, the authors of uh, National Geographic's Atlas of Beer: A Globetrotting Journey Through the World of Beer. Um, it's so nice of uh, the two of you to join me this morning and and to talk about this. Um, this for anybody that's going to be traveling anywhere in the world and you want to find out, you know, something about the, the local culture and, and in particular where to get a good beer. This is a tremendous uh, resource, but it's a beautiful book uh, on top of that, as all uh, National Geographic books are. The photography, of course, is uh, 
stellar as always. Um, we're we're about out of time, Mark and Nancy, but uh, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and about uh, this book and, and other projects that you're involved in. Do you have a website? Uh, we don't have a website, but if you're interested in the book and there's information in the book about us, uh, you can get the book at anywhere books are sold, both at brick-and-mortar places as well as online. And uh, stay tuned. We may have something else in the works coming up in the near future. All right. Well, thank you both, and uh, um, happy St. Patty's Day. Yes, to you too. All right. Take care. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program right after this. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War I. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. The Tom Summer Program.com. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. 
Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I'm trying to think of something else. Oh, oh, you know what? You, you know what I did? What I did? I don't mean just now. But today for the first 
First time in my whole life I played golf. Golf. <laughs> Mr. Cole, Mr. Cole called me this morning and said, uh, Foster, some folks in one of the nice country clubs in town have asked us to join them in a, in a golf tournament that they're having. And I said, Mr. Cole, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't play, play golf. And he said, it doesn't make any difference how you play. You can play and do the very best you can. They'll furnish everything. And just the way they handicap the players and all, no matter what your sco score is, you still have a chance to win a very lovely prize. So I went over and they showed me the courtesy of letting me hit for first, you know. And so I put one of those little stick sticks in the ground, and then I put a ball, ball on it. And I took one of those long clubs and I swung at it and I really hit, I really hit the ball. And I was quite proud, you know, so I stepped down off the, the mound there, you know. And a fellow came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Brooks, would you like a caddy? And I thought I'd want a car. <laughs> He finally explained to me that a caddy was a young man who went around with you, and if you knocked a ball in the woods or, or the rough, he would help you find it. And uh, apparently, Mr. Como told him that I had never played before because he started me off with about a dozen brand new balls. By the time I got to the eighth tee, I didn't have any balls left. <laughs> two balls and a ball washer. <laughs> when I real, realized I didn't have any ball, balls left, I looked at the caddy and I said, boy, boy I'm telling you. He said, what? I said, you gotta be the, you gotta be the wor worst caddy in the whole world. He said, oh, oh, I don't think so, Mr. Brooks. That, that would be too much of a coincidence. The most frightening thing to me when I got married was that there would be one person who would know me better than anybody else. You know, you can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool your wife. There are dark corners of yourself you don't want anybody to know, but she gets to know them. She knows your good side and your bad side, you know. And especially when we're, you know, they say, oh, it must be just marvelous being married to Bobby, so funny, you know. And she goes, oh, yeah, he's just gang of laughs, gang of laughs to do this. <laughs> and when I'm having a fight with a wife, invariably they'll say, she, Jenny's such a lovely girl. Say, She's terrific. She really, really is a wonderful girl. She really is, you know. Especially when you aren't talking to one another for four or five days. But... You can, fool your, you can fool your children and you can fool your friends. You know, go out to a party and get smashed and they'll say, uh, you know, and your wife will say you were really smashed and your friends will say, oh, I didn't realize Bob was drinking, you know. That. But you can't fool your wife. Now, this is a guy, gets up the next morning with a, he's been out and he's got the daddy of all hangovers. See? And he comes down.
Rob, Rob, don't, don't play with a dump truck. Just leave, leave the dump truck alone. <clears throat> don't, don't play with a Varum toy. Just leave the Varum toy alone. Daddy, Daddy doesn't feel well, Robert. Daddy has a cold, Robert. Another cold, yes, I know. I know Daddy had a cold last week, and it just... Grown-ups get weekend colds, Robert. It's, you, get a, you get a cold from, uh, well, from going from a warm place into a cold place, or from a cold place into a warm place, and from booze. Yes, you can get it from booze. Who, who told you you can get a cold from booze? That's where Mommy said Daddy's colds come from. Have, have Mommy come in. And don't slam the, the, the door. <clears throat> Hi, dear. Hi. No, I feel fine. I know, I know I was drinking last night. I feel, feel fine. Just sitting here watching, watching television. Picture tube's been out a week, huh? Thank God I thought I was going blind there for a while. Yes, yes, I know I have your dress on, dear. You don't have to tell me. That's, that's why, that's why the, the milkman uh, waved at me this morning. Didn't make a hell of a lot of sense at the time. What, what does Fred want for breakfast? Who the hell is Fred? My, my old army buddy. Eh? I insisted he stay with us last night. Honey, I, I was never in the army. How the hell could I ever? You fixed something special for my old army buddy and myself. Honey, uh, would you call a cream chip beef on toast, please? Honey. I thought I'd just, I thought I'd sit here and then uh, maybe a couple hours, I thought I'd try to make it to that chair over there. And if that goes well, I thought I'd try to stand up tomorrow. another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. I remember the night mom was pounding on her drums. She called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up. Pretty soon you're gonna drive. And Daddy heard the commotion and came, came in tap dancing, playing his six string. And they both looked at me and they said, Son, before you get behind the wheel of a car, you listen to me. If you're texting while you steer, don't drive. If you've been drinking beer, don't drive. If you're talking on the phone, don't drive. Your tires are bald and it's starting to snow, don't drive. If your foot can't reach the pedal, if you're wearing no apparel Don't try If you took an illegal prescription Don't try If no one understands your diction Don't try Don't speed, don't read, don't read, don't tweet Don't shave, don't rave, don't wave, don't eat And don't put no makeup on or shave You know you're not supposed to do that huh. If you've got a new 
something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and step on my blue suede shoes Ah, go ahead and scuff them up If you're driving with your knees Don't drive While you roll you eat Don't drive If you don't know how to drive Don't drive If you've been psychedelicized Don't drive If you're kissing on your boo Kissing on you. Don't drive. If you've been drinking at a bar. Don't drive. If there's guns in the car. Don't drive. Don't groom, don't shave, don't tweeze, don't nurse, don't voice these things in your ears or rummage through your purse. Ugh. Don't do that. Huh. If you want something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and talk on my food man chew. Go ahead, I don't care. Watch me tear. If you feel like a nap, don't try. If there's a pooch on your lap, oh, it's dangerous and creepy. If you're feeling really wired, if your license is expired, don't you drive around the town. Something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and step on my blues way shoes Scuff them up Then go ahead and pull on my Fu Manchu yeah. If you want to do something You want to do something that's good If you're feeling like any of that stuff Don't drive Make sure you got a clear head Ow Ugh. Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 